Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is mid-afternoon in San Francisco, California, later in the day or even uh, next day elsewhere in the world. And the news in some ways is that all is perhaps not too well with the American elite. Late last week, we had a wonderful uh, conversation, or I thought it was a wonderful conversation, with uh, a young history professor at the University of Chicago called Blake Smith, who wrote a really interesting piece in Tablet Magazine about what he calls the woke meritocracy. It's really a critique of the new elite in America. And the, really the thing that struck me about his piece, it's a must-read piece, I think, is that this new generation of elites, the kids who are going to the University of Chicago and Harvard and Princeton and Yale elsewhere, and of course out here, uh, Stanford, uh, they are all way too close to their parents and to their families. They don't have any sense of independence and worst of all, as, um, as, as, as Blake Smith uh, uh, reported, um, these kids love their parents. They're not rebellious at all. They are, they are tied to their parents. So this crisis of... But above all, I think what Blake, uh, Mer- uh, Blake Smith, not Blake, meritocracy was arguing, is that these kids are also kind of miserable. They're lost. Uh, they're deer in the headlights. This idea of the... American miserable, overworked American meritocracy is one we've examined before in this show. We had the Yale lawyer, Daniel Markovitz, on the show uh, talking about his critique of meritocracy. Um, And we also had um, Michael Sandel, who has a a blistering critique of uh, the Harvard uh, philosopher, political philosopher on the show recently, um, who has a blistering critique of this new meritocracy. Um, Another area that we've discussed a lot in the show is the crisis of intermediary institutions between the individual and the state. Um, Michael Lynn, the uh, Texan political philosopher, was on the show recently also uh, talking about uh, what he calls the new class war, saving democracy from the metropolitan elite which is also a critique of our new elite in America, uh, suggesting that there aren't any more intermediary institutions. He's, he's, he's uh, bemoaning uh, the lack of unions. Uh, on top of this, while we were talking to uh, Blake Smith, he recommended at the end of a book, a new book uh, by somebody called Matt Feeney, a book called Little Platoons, A Defense of Family in a Competitive Age, which is also a critique of... Um, uh, of our of our new elite of this meritocratic elite, particularly written from the point of view of the universities and education. And uh, after I got off uh, talking to uh, Smith, I connected with Matt Feeney. He rushed a book over. Uh, to uh, he lives in Oakland, California. He rushed a book over to my house in San Francisco, California, and voila. Uh, three days later, we have the great Matt Feeney on the show to talk about the new book. This shows 
how effective both digital and analog communications can be. Um, Matt, let's go back to Blake Smith and his analysis of this new American elite. Are they as miserable um, as he suggested? Are these kids lost like deers in the headlight of their uh, of their parents' ambitions? Um, that's you know, I mean, I I would have to defer to Blake on this because he's got a fantastic perspective as a, uh, a instructor of a of you know University of Chicago undergrads. I, you know, I mean, the way this it's not just in that essay, which is a fantastic essay, but just in on his Twitter account. He has just got a lot of insight into that the way that works. I don't I don't claim to know the the meritocracy writ large. My perspective in my book is largely about um, the grinding of families and oftentimes of, of parents. And so I don't you know I I don't have any measures of the happiness of parents. I make more of a kind of normative argument about the the way that they relate to the institutions that dispense advantage in this kind of meritocratic arrangement that we have. Well, the reason I brought up the the Lynn book earlier um, is uh, is that your analysis takes a step back from the physical university, from the university that Smith writes about, right? And you seem to be arguing in little platoons, and in some other work. You just had a piece that came out today, the lead piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education, the abiding scandal of college admissions. You seem to be arguing that the real problem in America perhaps isn't the university, which is epiphenomenal. It's the family. What's gone wrong with the American family? All right. So so I I think what I end up describing is a kind of parallel, a set of a a parallel. um, So maybe what we say is that what's what's wrong is is that kind of the overall kind of what, what maybe used to be a virtuous arrangement in American uh, social space, which is the kind of distribution of um, intermediary institutions like schools and universities um, and, um, and uh, in clubs and that kind of thing, as well as, as families and the way that they kind of occupy social space in this, you know, relatively uh, un, um, unregulated, un, unorganized way. And they, in a self-organizing way, according to the kind of classic uh, um, conservative, especially conservative or classical liberal. Right. Kind of- so you go back to um, to Burke and the Tocqueville, uh, the two great heroes of Anglo-American conservatism and suggest that for them, uh, as for so many other conservatives, the key to democracy are these intermediary institutions that exist between the individual and the state. And you seem to be suggesting that the family now is coming to dominate those institutions. Well, so they've, well, the way that I, the way I would put it is that they, the, the, these, the family, the, the competition among families, especially kind of what I call empowered you know, bourgeois families, the competition among them against each other. Say that of, again, my, uh, say that again. I love how you said bourgeois. Go on, say it again. The competition among bourgeois families and- uh, Spoken like a true Marxist. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, uh, and the um, so, so there's like, in the one of my college chapters, I describe a parallel, a parallel competition. There's a competition among the families or the kind of striving families and their striving children on one hand. And then the competition among the institutions, depending on which you know stage we're at in this process of of raising children, um, the competition among say sports clubs on one hand or private schools on the other um, on another or preschools, and that um, these two things kind of operating together, you end up with this um, 
um, this this arrangement where the the the, the energy of families is it's not so much that they're dominated by they're not so much it's not so much that they dominate the institutions as the institutions kind of see these families at work you know so willing to work to um, improve the prospects for their children that the institutions kind of like change how they relate to families so as to extract as much labor from families as possible. You have these families approach these institutions, kind of look at the you know scary future and say, well, my kid needs to get into a club sport or my, need to get, my kid needs to get into a fancy preschool in order to um, kind of have this leg up. And the institutions, the people who run these institutions kind of like are aware of this, are sensitive to uh, these inputs. And then they kind of alter their operations so as to make it possible for kind of, you know, uh, there those institutions, those organizations to kind of use the labor of families. And the point, the kind of the political point that I make, the normative point that I make about family life is that this changes the way families see themselves, that they see themselves as these kind of supplicants to these institutions. The institutions kind of like say, come on in and help us. And the families kind of then kind of like reorganize themselves. Right. And you, and you use the metaphor, I don't know whether it's a metaphor or you perhaps in some ways use it literally, of the Hunger Games. Of America now is a Hunger Games, of uh, a Hobbesian world of family, what you would say bourgeois family against bourgeois family to get into Stanford and and Yale and Berkeley. You have a a lovely way of putting it, uh, Matt. You said uh, the internal lives of families have in fundamental ways been rewired to satisfy not the expectations of college professors, nor the demands of the 21st century workplace, but rather the selection imperative of admissions officers. In other words, the, you argue that the American family, or at least the what you would call the bourgeois family, um, is being redesigned so that uh, kids can get into Stanford and Yale. Yeah, so everything is about this moment of selection. So they end up, um, so, so, you have kids, you know, especially kind of like the striving kind of meritocratic kids who um, kind of see their job as impressing administrative gatekeepers at universities, admissions officers. And so the um, the formation of these kids, their, their kind of self, their, their self-aware kind of process of um, preparing for college, it's not really preparing for college as an as educational experience, it's, it's preparing for the prior moment of selection. So how to, how to make themselves Kind of look. Um, why, why is this, Matt? Um, we can't blame the kids, of course. Uh, why are parents in places like Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco and Brooklyn, why are they so obsessed with their kids going to the best schools? Is it a Darwinian process? Do they understand that if they don't get into the University of Chicago or Yale, they're going to end up working at Best Buy? We, there's, I mean, I feel like there's, I think that Blake actually spoke about this, about the way that, you know, within the meritocracy, there is this belief that there's only a handful of desirable jobs, jobs that are kind of- Is that true out. though? I, I mean, um, I don't think it is. I mean, I my family lives in the Midwest and they, they have interesting jobs in different industries and they're not all working for McKinsey or, or whatever. Um, and But but this critique and this, this worldview does reflect a certain- uh, uh, inegalitarian reality in America, another theme. That yeah, we, I, I think that's right. In a, about also, time and time again, the disappearance of the middle class, right. the new elite, the underclass, and very little in between. Right. So I think that there's, you know, there's certainly an element of, of, of kind of economic truth in that. But I also think that the um, population of bourgeois parents are uniquely attuned 
to uh, the downside. So they're uniquely uh, uniquely in inclined to kind of view this whole thing in Hobbesian terms, that is to say, to kind of like to have the summa malum, the, the greatest bad ever at the forefront of their of their minds, this thing kind of this terrible thing that they're trying to avoid. Whereas, uh, you know, I think that the further you go down on the on the, on the kind of uh, uh, class scale um, from this upper middle class point, the less you have this this uh, this um, feeling that there has to be, you know, that there is this abyss that that awaits your kid if he doesn't do, you know, he doesn't get the, get go through all the right hoops and, and uh, go to the right schools. I'm not sure of your politics, Matt. You, I, I, I get the sense you present yourself as a conservative, but maybe uh, as a conservative Marxist, because you seem to be suggesting that American capitalism now is being built around these voluntary associations of the family uh, and the university. Is that fair? Well, I mean, the the way in which, I mean, I, I, this is not really a focus of mine, but I, you know, other people write write convincingly about the way in which the, simply the influence of money in universities that you, they call it, you know, the neoliberal university and the university that is chasing money seems so. So the the presence of money in all of these things seems to, um, I guess one of the, the argument that I make, I'll put it this way: the argument I make is that the, the 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 what used to be the kind of salutary role of these intermediary institutions like private schools, the array of private schools that people had at their at their disposal to choose from um, um, in you know private sports clubs and things like that. That the 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 role that those institutions play that um, gets changed fundamentally. And so instead of it being a um, a way a buffer against the kind of the harsher uh, tides of of civic or political or economic life, they end up inflaming those uh, forces. Be by um, they become they become what you see for example in in the in universities is that they, that that Thanks to, I think, a kind of a general availability of knowledge, of, of information about about um, about schools, that the the rankings. I think Blake was speaking about this as well. The the rankings of schools and everyone. Yeah, Blake suggested that when he asked his kids why they, the kids he teaches at University of Chicago, why they came to Chicago, the only explanation ever was that because it was well ranked, so it doesn't right. really reflect any genuine intellectual interest. We also had. Um, the excellent uh, University of uh, Trinity uh, uh, scholar Deverin Baldwin on the show recently talking about how the universities are quite literally plundering our cities, colonizing our cities, destroying public space, taking over the downtown. Um, so in a funny kind of way, this disease is eating out our democracy from the right. inside out. It, it's amazing. And it's, it's like, so these institutions, right? So that we, you know, as families, and this is one of the arguments that I kind of want to emphasize that as, you know, families, the, the you know, families in, in aggregate, they kind of pour all these resources into, into colleges and universities and the, in the university and the universities, despite the fact that, you know, I mean, I suppose in the, you know, private universities are doing especially well, but even public universities, Cal, you know, you go, you walk around Cal and the place is constantly under construction. And when you say Cal, uh, Matt is referring to University of California at Berkeley, you just live up the road from there in, um, in uh, North Oakland. So, so yeah, so the way that I kind of present it in the book is that, especially with, you know, in, is that there's a kind of competition that takes place among the institutions themselves. So that there's, the, so, so on one hand, you have this idea, there's this unitary ranking. Now everybody knows what the ranking is. And so there's this, thanks to things like the U.S. News and World Report. So the, there's this unitary ranking. So kids, instead of think, instead of thinking, well, I'm just going to go to this, um, this nice nearby private 
Baptist university or Catholic university or whatever it is that that kind of uh, that suits them for these uh, for these personal reasons um, end up kind of viewing the college selection process entirely according to this unitary ranking mechanism and. Uh, and so the and so the colleges are all these colleges are all competing against each other. The students are all competing against each other. And so the um, the kind of casual uh, distribution of and 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 kind of half-assed comp competition among kids and and colleges has become systematized. And is and so the kids themselves kind of function on a on a single pyramid, and the colleges and universities themselves function on a single pyramid um, of prestige and. Um, uh, merit of whatever. And it's a nightmare in every perspective. We're yeah. producing dumb students. We're creating right. more and more inequality. The kids are miserable. I guess the only people happy are the parents who can show off about their own children. I, this was something that I suggested in, in the interview with Blake. One of the things that strikes me about my generation of parents is when their kids get into Princeton or Yale they take such pride in it. They present it as if it's some sort of accomplishment of the family. And again, to borrow your language, the bourgeois family is a very strong institution. It rarely, rarely breaks up. Uh, the level of divorce in the upper middle class right. in America is very low. Um, and these institutions are increasingly treated like the old um, aristocratic dynasties of the feudal age. Right. And we have a really hard time and this is why you know, I feel like I have to yell so loud because I feel like we. you, know, we well, have you a, can yell on this show, Matt. I don't mind. We have a really hard time kind of seeing, kind of like applying a kind of critical perspective to this stuff. Partly, I think, because one, it's our kids, right? So we're, we're, very, we're just so emotionally invested, immediately invested in, our, in what our kids are doing that we don't stop. Why do we love it? And let, let me ask you this question, too. Something that's always intrigued me. My parents didn't seem to be particularly, excuse the pun, keen on me. Uh, and most of my friends' parents were profoundly disinterested in their children. They would spend their time drinking or golfing or traveling. Why is our generation, why are we so obsessed with our kids? That's a really good question. You know, I have to say, I like being, you know, I, 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 and I write about this in the book, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm critical, I'm, or at least I'm kind of ironic about the kind of role that this kind of emotionally immediate parenting um, kind of imposes on us or, or puts us in. But at the same time, it's it's quite enjoyable to like really have this. Like, yeah, when you peel away, Matt, you're a typical East Bay parent obsessed. I, you've got, you've got you a know, 10, a 13 year old and a 14 year old. I'm sure you already got them uh, set to go to Stanford or no, Yale no, or some yeah. other awful institution. I spent a lot of time kind of like bad mouthing the entire thing. So they know at least where I stand. So they're uh, going to go to uh, Boise State, right? Yeah, you know. I, I mean, I was, you know, like I went to Central Michigan. That was my college, and I think that that, you know, and I got a great education there. So, um, but again, you know, the, you know, the, the people might not be wrong that there's a cost in making these, you know, kind of like it's in, definitely in a cost. You, you you've been writing about this for a while. I think this book came out of an excellent piece you wrote in 2016 for the New Yorker, right. uh, the poisonous reach of the college admit, admissions process. And, and you have a, a very sort of chilling uh, paragraph in it. You said the core of the system lies inside the colleges themselves, an admissions process fueled by the same anxiety logic. Our best guide to the policy quandaries played out isn't John Dewey or Diane Ravitch or even Amy Chua of Tiger Mother notoriety. It's Kafka. Kafka reappears in the American or reappears in the American university. Why is the system, uh, Matt, so Kafkaesque? Um, 
But again, I think that because what you have is, um, if you look at it, this is, and that was the, my first kind of opportunity to kind of just look at it. I never really even thought about it that much before. And I kind of look at it and realize that, well, this the, the various stages, if you look at the history of, of kind of, especially over the last 30 years, the history of the admissions process, and you see that the way that the the, the changes and the, the, the emphases that come from the admissions offices um, are themselves driven by the competitive behavior of the kids. So once, a, you know, like once a, a cohort gets wised up about what the admissions office wants, then that, then that stratagem is no longer valuable to the admissions office because now all the kids look alike. And so the admissions office is constantly kind of altering its its expressed desires so that the um so that so that they can see the kids better so you have to kind of bureaucracy isn't it if, if you want to introduce uh, uh um kafka to this conversation right. it is so um, the, the problem is that these admissions offices and the entire university now is a is a kafkaesque enterprise with bureaucrats who um who have no other role apart from being part of a, an increasingly incoherent and uh, uh, um, ubiquitous bureaucracy. Yeah, in, in, it's one of the things, it's, it's a frustration, you know, you see, because like I've been watching, you know, kind of campus politics or, you, you know, higher education politics play out for a long time. And I've thought, well, you know, there's gonna, about to be, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens with, you know, when that kind of the political role of the university is challenged from the outside. But then you see it actually happen and the kind of Republican politicians who kind of take it up always do it, of course, in the most idiotic way. Yeah, we it's, can't blame this though on the Republicans. I no, mean, no, we can blame no, lots no. of things on them. But yeah. if anything, this is a problem with the with the, the with the left, with liberals, isn't it? Right. Well, see, I would the one the way that I view it is that the um the the, the, the you know the radical quote unquote radical professors are much more sympathetic or much less unsympathetic character in this drama than are the administrators of the universities. And so <laughs> When I um, and, and and so in you you hear the, the you hear uh, faculty kind of like they 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 kind of cry out in despair about the kind of shrinking prerogatives on campus as administration swells in its size and its power. Yeah, but you're not going to get a lot of sympathy with academics on this show. Most of them are worthless too. Um, right. I, I, I'm curious, Matt. The the, the problem you bring out in this excellent book, uh, Little Platoons, I think is a really important one, bringing together the challenges and problems of family and, and America uh, or you know, early 21st century capitalism. But I wonder, is, is this really new? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had my friend Sherry Turkle on the show, the very distinguished MIT professor. She writes about going from a, a relatively poor Jewish family in New York to Harvard and her story is one in which the whole family seemed to focus all their resources into getting Sherry into Harvard. So this isn't new, is it? You know, um, it's not, it's not, and I don't, you know, the idea of like helping your, you know, like really putting a great deal of emphasis into your kid's education is, uh, there's nothing objectionable about that to me. I'm not anti-competition. The way that I, did, I talk about it in the book is it's, 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 this, it's the, this competition in its particular nature that is that is disturbing and that is that it um that the the institutions that that we kind of or the the competition increasingly uh involves a kind of an appeal to institutions an intimate appeal to institutions so it's not just you want to get your kids good in this grade and that you're a different um subject and that subject you want to you know, make sure that your kids are are, are well educated you have to turn your kid into a particular kind of person um to satisfy the uh, to satisfy yeah. the 
the selection. And that, and that person is the kid who can take exams and be appropriately bland enough to be able to get into a Harvard or a Yale. And to speak in the kind of codes, this, the performative codes that Blake Smith talks about in his essay. Yeah, you know? there's sort of yeah. this, this peculiar merging of, of wokeness and, and, and meritocratic achievement. Right. And, and, just, and, there's, and it's, there's other ways. And so Blake kind of like zeroes in on a particular way of expressing, expressing yourself. But there's, there's other ways that kids, kids do it. I, I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine a while back. And, 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 and I was saying, and I said, our, we were kind of like griping about something. And I said, is our, is our beef that people are too nice now? And he kind of laughed and said, yeah, yes. You know, that, that, that there's a kind of, uh, a kind of um, uh, surface socialized kind of a, a kind of moral performance that that especially among kind of edu- you know like you it's know, not kids. so much niceness it's not being objectionable it's not saying anything in any way offensive which is not nice it's annoying well, there's a kind of um, if you if you go if you go back into the schooling you know like throughout the, the school years of, of, of your kids I, I just the the, the um, I, there's another piece I, I wrote a piece for uh, New Yorker Online on Alan Bloom where I talked about how the um, yeah how how education is um, uh, how the the, uh, the way that you know kids are so are are so, are so uh, it kind of bureaucratically socialized now like from within schools everything the schools are really anxious that their kids not be bullies and that their their kids um, you know kind of have the right attitudes about all these different subjects and so the kids are um, constantly kind of socialized into a kind of into a kind of administratively acceptable niceness, and um, and so that's kind of that's kind of one of the. Uh, um, so what are we gonna? Uh, so uh, Matt, let's end on what we're gonna do about this. Um, I found a piece in the Nation magazine suggesting that if we want to dismantle capitalism, um, we have to abolish the family. Now I'm not sure, as I said, whether you're a Marxist or a conservative or a little bit of both. But do we need to get rid of the family? Is it reformable these days? Well, I tell you what, no, I tell you, people who say that they want to get rid of the family, I think of, as my enemies, basically. Um, I think the family is-, is This utterly, nice looking woman on the nation is your enemy? Yeah. I mean, I think that people who are kind of, people who um, people who think that you can dispense with family relations, you wonder what you want to replace them with. Um, uh, well, know, Marx argued it, Matt. Um, Engels argued it. Uh, Thomas More argued it in Utopia. There's, so it has a long history. Yeah, it has a long history, and it's always Plato argued it in the always, Republic. Yeah, it's always a history of of um, usurping family, private, private, intimate bonds with um, abstract, uh, governmentally prescribed bonds, and I'm simply not down with that. I think that that is that that's a that's a night. It's a dystopia to me. One I, of the I'm, the interesting, more realistic, and I think acceptable solutions you offer in the book and in your work is the idea of the lottery. You say that appeal, uh, applying to university now, everyone's everyone's good, everyone's an A-plus student, everyone knows how to write these essays. So we should introduce or reintroduce the lottery into the system, which also would do away with the increasingly uh, troubling inegalitarianism in our society. So, yeah, so I think that one of the ways that, I mean, the, the lottery would leave a lot of, it would be hard to extinguish a lot of those inequalities. But the lottery would at least kind of um, diminish the amount of what I call spiritualized meaning that people throw into kids and their parents pour into and direct um, drive out of the admissions process. The idea that there's some spiritual thing happening here. 
um, which is really quite offensive. The, the, the uh, administration's people act as if what they're doing is choosing between better and worse kids, right? And, 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 uh, and I think that's, you know, like they say, well, we really want to see their true self. And my, my question is, are you really, do you doubt that there's a true self there? I mean, why do you need to see the true self? There's a true self there. There's a kind of self behind all that stuff. The kid may be better or worse at presenting it. But like, is that some ontological mystery that there's a true self behind this application? Yes, there's a true self there. Um, and, and the idea that they kind of like, kind of like obfuscate this obvious reality in order to kind of like give themselves more administrative power into the, into the, uh, into the lives of these kids. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Um, so anyway, so, so and that encourages this degree of kind of spiritualizing of the, of the process. And, um, and so a lottery simply like taking that crap out of it, that spiritual garbage out of it, that, that is, Really, I mean, it, the I, the idea that these administrators are somehow moral judges of these kids is another kind of offensive. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. think about and, it. Um, it. It adding the, the lottery is an interesting idea because what seems to be happening in America amongst your bourgeoisie is that they're trying to do away with the the lottery of birth, uh, which we all know is a lottery. Sometimes you get a, a smart kid, sometimes you get a dumb kid. There's no guarantee what pops out. Right. Uh, but the, the bourgeoisie in America is doing its best to do away with that lottery. So right. you're really reintroducing the biological lottery system back into well, education and, and culture. I'm not even reintroducing. It's there. I mean, those, you know, those kids, I'm not saying that you're not necessarily going to have a different pool of viable applicants in, you know, the larger pool. It's just that this kind of charade of selecting among them on these personal criteria would be eliminated. Um, and that, um, so, you know, I don't really have a solution to the problem of... Oh. Right. And, and what about, uh, finally, uh, Matt, you have lots of critiques about parenting. One of your chapters, chapter one, is parenting in public, a speculative theory of overparenting. And I think your book is very much directed against overparents. What should the bourgeoisie be doing now? Stop obsessing over their parents, take up golf, um, wife swap. I mean, what is the solution to all this? Well, I mean, you know, I, you know, again, I have like this kind of pugnacious side. And so I kind of turn my, you know, my, ideally I would just turn their attention to the ways in which their prerogatives as parents are being, are being usurped by the kind of institutions that they, you know, in other words, appealing to their pride as parents to say, um, look, you know, so um, you shouldn't want to suck up to the college admissions process. That's, that should be offensive. You're your making kids. your kids miserable. You're making them yeah. into robots, particularly in, in a, in which Sherry Turkle calls the robotic age where, preempting uh, Silicon Valley by turning our kids into the very devices that we all fear so much. I mean, if you think about the, if you think about the college, the kind of the educational competition in the college admissions process as a selection process, then you can see it as essentially as, as having, you know, a sort of, a sort of um, a computerized character. And it is really disturbing to kind of view it in that way. You're right, because it all gets quantified, and the admission process is increasingly quantified. Right, and then, and they're and they're but they're also like they're formalizing the, uh, um, the the sorts of character that they want as well. So not only is your academic are your academic qualifications um, subject to this kind of this kind of measurement, but there's a a, a kind of subtler um, a, a subtler uh, set of uh, characterological or moral criteria that are being applied that that um, that have a kind of formal character, which is which is why you end up with a lot of these kids coming out exactly the same as as Blake Smith pointed out, because this also has a kind of normalizing uh, um, character to it.
Well, Matt, you've made me feel a lot better that both my kids ended up at Iowa State. Oh, really? Um, your, uh, your book, Little Platoons, A Defense of Family in a Competitive Age, is a really interesting read. I'm not sure, actually, if it is a defense. It's, it's an ambivalent defense. I, I'm not sure you've entirely uh, concluded on where you see the family, but it's an important book, and, it, and it's an important book because the elite in America has gone profoundly wrong on so many levels, and I think you make the links between um, this Tocquevillian crisis of the disappearance of intermediary institutions, uh, inegalitarianism, and the crisis in the university. So I would strongly recommend people read Matt Feeney's new book, Little Platoons. Uh, Matt, you are in North Oakland at this moment in April 2021. Still very strange times. We're all locked inside. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading? Uh, you know, I, I'm not... I'm not. A, I don't read very much contemporary stuff right now. I'm, I'm currently reading um, um, Charles Taylor's *A Secular Age*, um, which is about 800 pages long and very slow going, and so it's been taking me a while. So I've like been buried in that book for quite a while now. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to read boring stuff, um, especially at night when I'm not doing my own stuff. I tend to read uh, kind of slow moving stuff so that I uh, can eventually go to sleep. But you do have a couple of books to recommend, don't you, Matt? Well. Um, I'm currently also reading Phil uh, Phil Clay's uh, novel uh, Missionaries, which is which is excellent. Um, he's a National Book uh, a former um, uh, former uh, combat Marine who's a, um, a, an excellent fiction writer. Um, and what else? I mean, I'm always reading about five or six different books. Um, what um, about um, Haven in a Heartless World? Christopher Lash's critique. Yeah, yeah you know, if you want, like, talk, you suggested that that was a book that you think people should reread or, or yeah, look back uh, at. I mean, you know, Lash is a is obviously a kind of a, a controversial figure, um, but his it's well, really that makes him good if he's controversial, yeah, it, doesn't it? It's a, um, it's a it's a you know it's a little bit the book is a little bit outdated, I think, in terms of like the kinds of threats that he's that that. Yeah. that Family. He's talking about largely like administrative, you know, kind of like the the, uh, the helping the helping uh, professions, you know, um, either you know, social workers and and therapists and things like that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, Lash is such a powerful writer that, and it's just you know, obviously, just a it's, it's kind of like standing in the midst of a of a hurricane when you read him. He's just got so he's just so forceful. And what about a nice dry British approach to? The subversive family. You suggested that Ferdinand Mounts, the subversive family, an alternative history of love and marriage, might also be worth revisiting, particularly given the British first family's public travails. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely wonderful book. I was right after my 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 uh, book was published, I got an email from an editor at Princeton University Press saying that oh, you might be interested in this book, the subversive family, um, which I edited when I was, you know, I can't remember what the what the original publisher was. And I thought, oh my god, I, I love that book. And he was so it was like a real, it was a real uh, kick to have this conversation with this guy who had edited that book. I said, I'm a fan of yours now, now learning that you edited it. Um, that, yeah, so Subversive so Family is like a, it's like a real, it's a, um, it's a, it goes right in the face of a very familiar history that kind of, which is largely taken from Marx and Engels, a kind of economistic history of, uh, of the family. And I, um, Mount argues that family life. That something that we think of as, this, as the nuclear family um, is much was much more the norm than is usually as people think that. Well, then the, the nuclear family emerged in um, the Industrial Revolution and 
and Mount makes his argument that forms of, of the of the uh, nuclear family based essentially on the uh, kind of uh, emotional connection between between um, husbands and wives. In fact, as a model that goes back much farther in history, and it's, it was much more a kind of normal configuration than than is the normal the standard histories of the family um, uh, say. So mm. it's a it's it's a definitely a kind of a, a the revisionist. Um, view of the of the history of the family but very well, when it comes to the family we had Marx and Engels we had Ferdinand Mount and uh Christopher Lash and now we have uh Matt Feeney Little Platoons it's a good combination I want to thank you Matt congratulations on the book thanks thanks a lot and uh make sure that your don't kids that your kids don't go to Stanford thank you so much we'll be back on the show again very soon all right, thanks, Andrew.